Hello everyone, today I got the opportunity to talk to Dr. Luke Galen, a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Grand Valley State University, who specializes in religious studies, community behavior, and the use of alcohol. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. We cover a wide variety of topics. We come from differing backgrounds in terms of belief. I come from a Catholic religious background. Dr. Luke Galen comes from an agnostic background, as he'll say later on. We conflict on a number of points, uh, being that we're coming from differing faith backgrounds, and this was a challenging conversation, but overall I saw it as a way to speak to someone who isn't enrolled in the same beliefs as me, see what we share in common, see what problems their position outside of the belief system uh, allows them to see clearly, and how we can improve as a community. So I saw this as a very valuable conversation, and I hope you do too. What do you think of... Um... Are you like a big po big podcast guy, like listening to podcasts? Um, what do I listen to? A lot of the stuff I listen to is comes from NPR's podcast because they yeah. have podcasts on things like current events and um, on the media and politics podcasts. And um, I'm trying to think if I do anything in my in my area. Once in a while, I'll listen to uh, oh Freakonomics. Okay. Um, so some of the social science podcasts, once in a while, maybe Sam Harris podcast. I was going to say, you're a dead ringer for Sam Harris. When I saw your picture, I was like, is this, oh, is really? this Sam Harris and Witness no, Protection? Yeah. No, the, um, yeah, I've, I've, sometimes I listen to him. I don't always agree with everything that he says, but I think it's thought-provoking, so. He's an interesting guy. Yeah. What do you think of, like, the, the, there's, like, an emergence of professors in podcasts. You've got, like, Jordan Peterson, Andrew Huberman is the most recent one, Lex Friedman. I don't know if you know any of these names. I've heard of Jordan Peterson, but yeah. I've never, I don't think I've ever listened to his show. Okay. Yeah, th there's a, a wave of professors coming out and giving, I mean, these, these brilliant experts in academia are coming out and they're giving knowledge away for free, which I think is a really cool thing, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on, like, what that future of that looks like. I don't know. I don't know. No. I'm, I'm sort of, yeah, I'm a little bit out of the loop in that regard. Most of the stuff that I... On my work or whatever that I disseminate is through like we were talking about the book or um, journals or things like that. Yeah. So rather than on the on the internet, but I know that some people do have in uh, you know kind of shop talk podcasts that are niche in areas of psychology. So yeah, yeah. Well, I, I looked through some of your um, research papers. I noticed that one of the main theme, two of the main themes were uh, alcohol and community. I did, or yeah, a lot of my earlier work, since my degree in psychology is clinical psychology, so okay. I did a lot of my earlier work in graduate school, and then in my postdoctoral fellowship, I was at U of M in substance abuse. Yeah. But then when I came to Grand Valley as a professor, it's harder to do clinical work with populations. I mean, so I shifted to more like student and drinking alcohol. Yeah. But that's a little bit more difficult to do, and then I, um, I totally like took a left turn into the religion field, so I sort sure. of tell people like I gave up alcohol for religion uh -huh. um, but, but it's kind of true I kind of pivoted uh, and then the stuff I did after that was yeah related to religion work some of it had to do with group and community dynamics yeah yeah what do you think what do you think makes alcohol different from other drugs I don't know I mean you can make an argument that it's been you know it's more s socially acceptable in many ways obviously than well now we have legalized weed but um, for many years I was I would always ask people like make build me a case about why we have weed that's illegal, but alcohol that's legal, yeah. because in some ways the effects are equal or if not more damaging. Much so. worse. Yeah, I heard a really, there's a comedian, have a, he had a bit about uh, alcohol would never get past drug trials, because you put a bunch of people in a room, and they're like, yeah, we gave them 
you know, two or three shots, they seemed friendly, they were doing well, and then four or five in, they got violent. Yeah. The women were saying that something was wrong, but they wouldn't say what. The men got aggressive, and then they all passed out. And the crazy mm-hmm. thing is they want to do it again next weekend. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to make the case, yeah. So the, uh, or even I've had, uh, when I was doing clinical work, I had some heroin users, and despite mm-hmm. the fact of, like, the illegality of it made it damaging to them because they had to do stuff to get the stuff, and they would, yeah. you know. But mentally-wise, they weren't deteriorated in many of the ways that some of the chronic alcoholics were. Really? Like other than the other than their systems needed the opioids, other ways they go through withdrawal. A lot of them were sharp as attack. Yeah. Whereas the chronic alcoholics that have been drinking for 20, 30 years, you know, they were wasn't good. So yeah, yeah. I think one of the harder mm-hmm. things about uh, alcoholism versus being like an opioid addict is, I mean, alcohol's everywhere. It's being advertised. It's in every corner store, every store. There's like all these constant reminders. And I think, I mean, opioid withdrawal. I've heard is horrific but there isn't all these social visual cues all around you for someone who's trying to quit yeah so yeah but i don't um so that's not part of my work anymore and all this stuff that i do is more i guess you would say in religion would be more in the social psychology area of religion yeah, social sociality mm-hmm. okay yeah i wanted to get your thoughts on that so from reading your paper it's okay if you don't answer this but are you coming from a religious or a non-religious personal background um well, both. I used to, I originally I was from a religious personal background, but then uh, but then now I'm not. So I sort of shifted. I guess you could, depending on what term you want to use for that. I, you know, I disaffiliated from the specific church probably about a while back, maybe in the um, after graduate school. But as but I still retained some beliefs, and then after time that gradually faded out. So I guess I would self-identify as a agnostic atheist, non-religious right now. Okay. But you still have an interest in studying, like the, the structure and the community aspect of it. Um, the beliefs and the community, how they interact with each other. So you know, from the social psych perspective, almost all of our beliefs come from the social community. Like you know, what in my case, a lot of what I believed was because I was socialized to believe that. Yeah. And so um, you could even, you know, you could uh, have the most implausible belief system to an outsider, but if there's a community that shares that belief system. And you're not exposed often to outside ideas. It's really hard to imagine what it would like to be, you know, from outside that perspective. So. Yeah, and that and that can triumph even just straight cut logical thinking a lot of the time. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I would say personally, I was from a background where, you know, up until the age of when I went off to college, I didn't know anybody who wasn't not only religious but my specific religion. It was almost unitarily. Protestant, Christian, Lutheran in my case. Um, my parents taught at a Lutheran college. They sent me to Lutheran schools, K through nine. Every friend that I had was also in the same church, you know, so there was no, yeah. there was zero diversity. Yeah. So when did you start to um, explore ideas outside of that? It was gradual. So at college, I sort of met my first challenges to ideas that, that there were other types of religion. So I had to come to grips like, oh, they're, you know, I guess they're equally legitimate or at the time, I would have phrased it as like, I guess they could have salvation just as much as anybody else. Yeah. Um, but then as that went on, I'm like, well, this whole concept of like, you know, how do I know, um, how do I know that my worldview is the correct one if I've it's never, big, yeah, if I've question. never, everybody is equally in their worldview and they think mine is absurd, <laughs> would be absurd. So like, how am I any different? So I think in, when I went off to graduate school in psychology, I think a lot of the, um, the I was still religious, but I think I, I met an even more diverse pool of people 
had different beliefs and some were, you know, complete atheist or whatever. And so it was only then I, I had an outside perspective like, well, geez, how would I, you know, ju justify some of the ideas that don't make sense? And then I started connect, connecting the, what I was content-wise, what I was learning in psychology with the religion. So some of the concepts that I actually study now are things like cognitive dissonance resolution. Yeah. How do you resolve it when beliefs contradict or um, biases in thinking? Yeah. Um, uh, the tendency to seek out information that's conducive to your belief and not attend to information that's not. So it's only later on that I applied what I was learning about in psychology to my own belief system. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's strange. I think anybody who's very convicted in religious belief has to ask that question, like, why is mine the right one? And you get in this sort of lottery paradox, because with all the, I don't know, however many, probably like, there's going to be like a million religions out there. And the odds that yours is the right one, statistically, if you're just one in a million, the odds that yours is the right one is statistically zero. But at the same time, one of them has to be right, or at least less wrong than the others. Yeah, I, I know in some, you know, I think I went through a period where... Um, I tried to square that circle by saying that there's different pathways to the truth and that even things that might appear to my system contradictory, you know, this is, gets into more, almost like Eastern things that sometimes contradictory things can be reconciled at a higher level, the, yeah. the yin and the yang and all that. And I was watching stuff like um, comparative mythology, like Joseph Campbell type stuff, where yeah. he was talking about religion as more of like a metaphor, kind of a, I don't know if you're familiar with Carl Jung's idea about like the archetypal meta-narrative. Yeah. yeah. So the hero's journey and all that. Yeah. And so in that case, that allowed me for at least that time period, that was sort of my gateway drug to not, not being religious at all because it sort of was like, it can be tr true, quote unquote true, but in a metaphorical sense, you know, so like Christ's resurrection, like if I was a literalist, I would say either he rose physically from the dead or he did not. It has to be either or. But yeah. from a psychological perspective, then you could ask, is that a metaphor for some process? You know, Jung thought that was like a... Like a hyper-truth. Uh, yeah, like uh, whether he rose from the dead or not physically is factually is less relevant than whether inside you, you have your own spiritual conversion process that can be metaphor-wise a resurrection, you know, a transformation or some such like that. Yeah, I think in the Christian belief it's almost both because there's a literal account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then there's also that hyper-truth narrative where it's Jesus rose from the dead and in, in doing so, um, I guess, yeah, oh, like awakened. Yeah. Maybe that's not the best, but that's like the, well, the understanding was, that there yeah. can be life from death is also a part of that. But I think the two aren't... Um, diametrically opposed yeah so like the i think Jung and some of the people make comparisons with buddhism where buddha many buddhists would say that it's not really even so much a religion as it is the buddha as a historical figure was some guy yeah but that he in his own enlightenment um transcended his you know physical limitations and that uh even though you know he literally died part of him could be construed as almost like in the christ sense a transformation of a person to a higher level and so metaphorically you know yeah, you can be considered spirit, you know, a spiritual transformation. Yeah, is that so? Is that a common theme among religions? Is the idea of rebirth or life after death? Yeah, so like Jung thought that, and then Joseph Campbell's work was showing that using the, the literature or mythology, you can see the symbols, the same symbol crop up everywhere. So Jung's idea was that the reason for that is because we have a collective unconscious, and that yeah. you and me and everybody else, we are raised in a culture, but beneath that is a symbol system where the same things would appear in different forms in different cultures. Yeah. Christ, Buddha, you know, it could even be, you know, um, um, things that are um, 
yeah, so the in different symbol symbolic language, but that they represent they represent something psychologically that's in us. Yeah, but then uh, yeah, I guess the obvious question would be like, where does that come from? Like, why is that at all? Yeah, so now the um, the from a functional perspective, you could so part of it could be just a function of our own. We have we've evolved to have this massive brain, and that that brain generates systems of belief. And that even though our brain might have been evolved for other survival reasons, you know, to get us through the snowy winter, that it, it also generates systems that make sense of our experience. What, you know, the knowledge that we're going to die. Oh, yeah. crap. You know, I need a buffer against that. That's too scary. Oh, there's heaven. It's okay. You know, and so the, that we might have evolved the brain that gives us uh, religious systems. There's people right now in the area called the cognitive sciences of religion that would suggest that... Um, looking at religion from an evolutionary perspective uh, and then there's a debate about like the functional adaptation people versus the non-adaptation people one adaptation could be group groupiness where that we've evolved to survive as a group species and that mm. what religion really is if you think about it is a mechanism to bind us together into a cohesive group those people that had those beliefs in the community survived the ones that didn't didn't and so we've evolved to get very in groupy and we could call that religion in a way yeah i think historically if you look at christianity as a function of survival we have a pretty terrible track record we uh <laughs> martyrdom is mm -hmm. the most hailed thing you can do in, well, in yeah. catholicism and it's like <laughs> it, it seems strange to phrase um Christianity, at least. Although, like, think about kin selection. So in biology, there's a the concept of kin selection of self-sacrifice. Yeah. Now, if I live in a group that's a small community where I'm related to everybody, let's say you're my cousin, I share genes with you, there might be a situation in which if I, if I sacrifice myself, let's say I give a warning cry and I get picked off by the, by the predator, but you survive, if yeah. enough of my kin survive, that those genes for altruism could actually be passed on. Uh, and that, and that, in small group situations, it could actually be functional yeah. to sacrifice. So some people actually did that analysis with people that are celibate in the Catholic Church. Yeah, not martyrs, but like let's say that you're a, one of the out of ten brothers. One becomes a monk. He doesn't have kids, and you're like, how could that celibacy or sexual, uh, you know, inhibitions possibly be genetically productive? And then they've tried to do the math. Like, well, if it means that you get resources that are passed on to your kin, they survive at a higher rate. Um, okay. So, some people have tried to square that circle with like the, the the biology. If you look at a lot of religious moral rules, they're actually pro-natal, have a lot of kids, populate yeah, the earth. Yeah, especially Catholics. I grew up in a neighborhood use, where the average kid size was like eight. Yeah, don't use birth control. <laughs> so there, you can conceptualize religion. Somebody actually did. A, I read a paper the other day where they said that almost all the rules that differentiate religious morality from non-religious morality are reproductive ones. Interesting. So what are the things that get religious people most excited about? Abortion, homosexuality, you know, particularly women's sexuality. Um, a lot of the rules in the Old Testament are all about, you know, um, don't have non-procreative sex, essentially. Yeah, don't don't spill your seed on the ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so it's not just, you know, male homosexuality, but it's basically like in a area, in a religion, so there's like a communal reason. If there's a desert landscape, you're out there in the Middle East, which belief systems are going to be popular? The ones that spread the most people far and wide and produce more people, so. Yeah, I wonder if you could flip that, though. Like, you're, um, I'm understanding it as, yeah, religion is a function of almost like a higher consciousness so that I can redistribute or um, regenerate the human population in a, in a, yeah, through generations. 
but you could also view that as that's a function of a higher order, uh, which is the divine as it's understood in Catholic circles, that to populate is a good uh, and is good for the sake of good. Because when you get into the, the evolutionary arguments, one thing that always confuses me is if, if you keep asking, but why is that good? Like, why is it good that life should beget new life from an, from an evolutionary standpoint or down to a, a materialistic standpoint? If there's no higher order to the plane of reality that we're on, why anything at all? Why is it good that some matter that walks and talks and breathes and likes Netflix and sleeps? Why is it good that that matter should make more matter? Why, it, it seems to not make much sense at all. Well, you could say that there's another concept in the, the cognitive science of religion is that some concepts have developed that are, I guess, what you might call doctrinal from the church, from the Bible, or from texts and things like that, teachings, that are not always mapping directly upon the concepts that are intuitive about religion. So for example, um, um, uh, life. So the, the, a Catholic would say the proper church doctrine would be life is sacred, yeah. and, that, and that it's divinely infused, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, and then you have morals that develop from that. Don't use, you know, um, uh, birth control or, you know, don't commit murder and things like that. But then there's also things where they, you do get splits in Catholics in practical terms on things like the death penalty or, yeah. or warfare or defensive violence. And so you get debate about that where they say, well, that's the church's teachings, but I think that that murderer should be punished. But so, that's why we have doctrine. And so the doctrine sometimes doesn't line up against the intuition. And so often, and there's where I come in as a psychologist, I would say, it looks as if what's happening is is that the, the technical doctrine is almost um, 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 fought back against by our intuitions, like retributive punishment, bad, 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 you know, even yeah. though, but Jesus said good, 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 and then you get liberal and conservative Catholics. Yeah. They can't even agree on, you know, like liberation theology in, the, in Latin America, like the poor, Jesus, all this stuff, and then... The, the conservative Catholics, you know, capital, yeah. capitalism, and and so they can—they're the same religion, yeah. and so technically they should be getting their beliefs from the religion, but it's going the other way. Ideally, you know? yeah, you would think so, but it seems to be a little mm -hmm. trickier. I think ideology, especially political ideology, has a higher sway over people's minds Absolutely. than the sadly the Catholic faith, which I I think doctrine is a function of, I'd say it's a safeguard against bias in the modern age against conflicting beliefs because I think for a lot of people and even the majority of people their political beliefs will trump their Catholic beliefs yep. and that's not good um, because the Catholic beliefs have been developed over years and years and years to uh, I guess withstand pressure from ideologies that well, pop up and go back. So I write about this in my book but here's another one that you would say that the belief developed because of the psychological intuition and that is in the um, um, limbo and purgatory. Yeah. So if you read the Bible, the text, there's nothing about necessarily purgatory there, like uh, in-between state. Or, yeah. And so it doesn't strike us as being fair, quote-unquote fair, that you have somebody who has no knowledge of Christ going to hell, or like a baby that mm -hmm. dies before it's baptized. Why should they? So if you follow the letter of the law, they're like, well, it's a tough row, but, you know, the kid was a, <laughs> he was never saved. And so they... I, I don't <laughs> believe that's the belief. I well, they, I was reading there's some papers, and so there's a committee that was informal working for the not the Vatican but they submitted their papers to the Vatican that sort of justified like okay there are l lesser forms of damnation or, or purgatory and in the case of somebody who's didn't receive salvation through no fault of their own 
that they wouldn't be punished for eternity. And then so then you have these concepts like purgatory and limbo where babies go or like pre-Christian, like, I don't know, Aristotle or somebody like that would yeah. go there. Would go there. Uh, almost like Dante's levels of hell where you the have... first one where Socrates uh, is. Yeah, yeah. Where, where people like, you know, and so if you think about that as being some, it's clearly what we're trying to do is reconcile our intuitive sense of fairness and, and a punishment that makes sense with this doctrine uh, that's developed. And so we develop new doctrines where we just sort of, it's come as, almost as like a reconciliation of our psychological nature with the literal scripture like policy wise yeah. hell is a tough one for a lot of people to accept and it's yeah we, we could go on about that that's not quite the road that i want to get from first off because it's like that's something i am oh, still sorry. trying to figure out no no no, no you're good i uh, i'm enjoying this so far i did want to get your it was um, just on the brain because i was writing about that in the book so yeah no i want to get your take on community just in in general like I guess my first question would be, what's the fundamental, what do you need to have a community? What are the elements of the community? <clears throat> oh, that's a little bit, that's kind of more, uh, would be a more like anthropology type question almost because then you'd have to say like, um, you know, for, so from my knowledge, you could base community on, and here's my psych perspective. It looks as if people are willing to, to form groupiness, if you want to call that a community, a sense of in-group and out-group boundaries, almost randomly over trivial yeah. things. And so even there's all these studies that are called the minimal group effect where they assign people randomly to like your red team, your blue team. And yeah. that means I've nothing seen it like to numbers them. numbers one or two. But people then... start to defend that and they start to do things yeah. like devote money to their team and punish the other team. And so uh, I show this in class actually. There's some, uh, we used to think that was by the way learned that you learn to be prejudiced against people outside your community and favor the inside. I showed this video of the, some experiments at um, Yale and they're, they have an infant neonatal, like you know, like a baby lab essentially. And the okay. babies are, they can't even speak because they're babies and they show them puppet shows of like puppets doing different things. Okay. And, and then they have a puppet that shares their taste in food. Let's say there's graham crackers and Cheerios. You like graham crackers. The puppet likes graham crackers, but there's another okay. one that doesn't like it. He likes Cheerios. And then they give the kids a chance to like, see the puppets um, punished or not. Like there's another puppet who like slams a box shut on them and they actually prefer the puppet who punishes the one that doesn't share their taste really? in food. Almost as if they're That's trying to say that, that, that um, you know, that infants are sort of born with a preference of groupiness and the dark side is that they're willing to see the people who aren't in their group spanked essentially. Yeah. Uh, and so there's some evidence in that case to, as a roundabout way to address your question that maybe we come hardwired to form a group almost over any shared identity, whether that's team yeah. or tribe or whatever. Do you think the positive delight in seeing the out-group punished is greater than the positive delight in seeing the in-group succeed? Now, that's an excellent question because we seem to be seeing that uh, in, in, I mean, look around, that uh, yeah. this concept in politics of negative partisanship where yeah. people now are not so much saying, I'm a Democrat, but they're saying, I hate Republicans. Yeah, they're not so much, I love Joe Biden, but I hate Trump. Nobody, nobody <laughs> votes for, nobody, I haven't heard anybody in the last 10 years go like, I can't wait to see this guy in office. It's always like, we can't have this So guy. that's how you look at all the ads and stuff where it really gets people ginned up in their lizard brain, you know, amygdala is the thought of the out group, you know, uh, taking over, like, oh, I can't let that happen. And so... Yeah. Um, and speaking of the, those baby labs with the kids, they actually had another study where they showed kids playing these little basic economic games, like you give a token, 
and the other person, the other kid gets a token, and they let the person choose between various allocations. Now, if you're a rational economist, you'd say what should be motivating you is maximize what you get token-wise. But then they have people choose between splits where you can get, let's say, one token if the other guy gets nothing, or you can get two tokens if he gets two tokens. Okay, so it's now, like a prisoner's dilemma? So rash, Well, similar to that, rationally what you should choose is the two tokens, right? Yeah. So you get two, he gets two. But kids at below a certain age, let's say below like you know junior high level, they'll choose the one where they get less if the other guy really? gets even less than them. The relative distinction, I don't want him to have, I want to have more than him. So they actually end up hurting themselves just to be more than the other person. And then at about age, I don't know, like 10, 12, that starts to flip where they okay. get more generous. Maybe culture has kicked in at that point to say, like, come on, like, yeah. let the guy have something. Will the good of the other. So there is, there's some evidence, at least, that, that people might be predisposed to um, not just punish the outgroup, but even at a loss to you, you'll do yeah. uh, to see the other guy have, uh, to, to maintain your status over the other guy. Yeah, I saw a thing, it was the progression of evolutionary instincts goes in order, fight or flight, us versus them, right or wrong <laughs> yeah. yeah or or the disturbing part to me is that many of our sense of right or wrong actually comes from the earlier ones too we just layer the a bunch of stuff them. on top of it so like you know when you're healthy well-fed if you're in a nice society you you're generous but then in crisis or when you stress people out warfare or maybe even your blood sugar drops those impulses to like um circle the wagons increases so there are some yeah. experiments where that where people under stress or duress um uh, become more in groupie uh, yeah. and are more likely to, to 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 ding the other guy yeah yeah and it can be pretty deadly i think it's interesting to see especially in political speeches it's always if you know those three instincts the fight or flight us versus them right or wrong they always hit on all three sometimes in the exact order where it's like uh there's a danger there's this dangerous group, the, the dangerous Democrats, the reckless Republicans, blah, blah, blah. They're going to come for your kids. They're going to do this and that. And then they group them, right? It's us. It's like, you know, vote blue no matter who or go red. I'm trying to be like partisan because it is present on both sides. Um, but yeah, they'll establish an out group. And then they'll say like, it's your duty as an American to protect this country. So in order, they'll appeal to each of those senses. And it's no wonder why it's so rousing to people. It seems to triumph over irrational thought. Yeah. Yeah, and so there's, a, I also study an area, it's not religion, but there, there's, there's areas in psychology that try to look at the underpinnings of ideology or even rooted in personality or even psychobiology style. That is, if you imagine people differ like on a bell curve in terms of their preferences, that we're not all quite the same in regards to our tendency to be groupy yeah. or to the tendency to be. Um, so one of the constructs uh, that people use a lot in psychology is authoritarianism, yeah. the, the tendency to um, to conform to a group model, to be aggressive towards outgroups. It looks as if part of that's almost uh, even genetic, that people hmm. differ in that regard in that it can actually be spiked by situational threats. So again, you could be peaceful Pete during the day if your needs are being met, but if there's a crisis or whatever that some people get more authoritarian and anti-outgroup than others. And do you think that explains some of the political splits? Yeah. Okay. So in political psychology, um, there's a book that came out a few years ago called Predisposed by uh, John Hibbing, I believe, University of Nebraska, where he compiles a lot of research that shows that there are differences between conservatives and liberals at a psychophysiological level. 
Uh, that doesn't surprise me, actually. And so the main dimension, if you boiled it all down and got simplistic about it, was um, was sensitivity to potential negative threats. So uh, things like um, scary stimuli. Conservatives are more uh, vigilant to things that are potentially harmful, whereas liberals are like, oh, the belief that the world could potentially be dangerous. Yeah. Um, the belief that um, the outgroups are icky, like disgust response. So in other words, yeah. a liberal would be like, they say like, oh, two guys kissing or like interracial marriage. Yeah, not for me, but hey, whatever. Yeah. Whereas the conservative would be like, the, the moral reaction would be like, yuck, disgust. Yeah. And so if you boil it all down to that, it, 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 Hibbing would argue that a lot of our political differences are actually rooted in, in a natural tendency to differences in regards to potential threats from negative stimuli. Yeah, because I think like the most fundamental definition of a conservative is a, a firmer establishment in established values. Yeah, so change uh, for a liberal would be like, oh, interesting, complexity. Yeah, like, thing, oh, great. Whereas conservative would be like, wait a minute, do we want to do that? Yeah. I think Chesterton said that the difference between a conservative and a liberal is if they encountered a fence in the woods, a liberal would go about tearing down the fence <laughs> so they could see what's beyond it, and then the conservative would look carefully to see what it keeps in and what it keeps out. Yeah, because a lot of the, the hippie makes an argument that a lot of the differences between conservatives and liberals aren't even in, in the political or social realm. They're things like preference for different types of art. You know, yeah. liberals are more comfortable with abstract, weird art. Conservatives are like, I want figurative art. Liberals yeah. are like, let's try different tastes in food or music, like weird jazz or like avant-garde. Conservatives are like, you know, Applebee's for me, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, and so, you know, Cracker Barrel versus Thai food or whatever. Sure. And so if you look at things like uh, like that, it's hard to make an argument that they learned that in terms of, you know, like political or religious social yeah. things. It seems to be more almost constitutional, uh, a predisposition to one thing or another. When you put it so objectively, it seems like, why are we even fighting about it? Because it seems like there could be a system where the two balance each other out in a harmonious way. Yeah, so uh, that lends the question, if it is almost genetic or biological, that, you know, as with everything else in evolution, that some things can be functional in some environments and not others. If you're in a safe environment, uh, then it is uh, functional to be curious about complexity, to maybe go over the hill and see what's over in the next area. Yeah. But if you're in a threatening environment, you need that authority. You need a butt kicker. You need an authoritarian yeah. who's going to be like, and this is the, like the plot of all kinds of movies or TV shows, and that is um, that the under threat, the liberal sort of, you know, wussy, namby-pamby person is like, you, okay, sit down now, let the let the guardian take over. Yeah. And so there's, in, in political psychology, there's this... Um, rhetoric or, uh, about uh, the tough father model versus the nurturing mother model. Okay. And so, um, and so when you look at political speeches, so like you were talking before about like the, the progression and things, when you're under authoritarian type threatening conditions, people prefer the candidate or the speech or the content mm. who's the tough father. I will protect you. There are people out there who are bad people. You need be. Okay. Uh, whereas under, under conditions that are more safe, uh, then people often prefer the nurturing, loving, like, let's take care of people. Uh, mm, everybody's okay. equal. So in wartime, it'd be more likely that a conservative candidate would be elected. Yeah. Interesting. Because it seems as if both sides, um, every four years, every election cycle, it seems like there's always a, a racial incident that happens. And in that election cycle, it seems as if liberal candidates will try to piggyback off that in order to usher in this... Um, we're the party of inclusion and safety and all that. And they'll appeal to the, the racial sensitivity of their voter base, which is good, but it does seem like they appeal to that there's a danger mentality. 
Yeah, well, they would say, that then they disagree on what the danger is. So to the liberal, the danger would be overzealous authoritarian cops. To the conservatives, the, okay. cops so the, thin blue, the, thin blue, the cops are the thin blue line that's protecting your stuff. Okay. So the thing that's, that does, you know, on, on a personal level, it doesn't bother me that you have differences in liberal conservative thing. The thing that worries me is that under conditions that are potentially could go either way, there are some people who would stoke the fears of threat in order no, to take there's over. No, there's nothing like that going on. And so if you think about things like, you know, uh, statistics about crime or murder, um, the country's much safer now than what it was in the 90s. Murder rates yeah. or whatever, I mean, they spiked up a little bit in recent years, but I was in, I went to Wayne State. I was in Detroit during the 90s. Yeah, okay. That was, there's where you had a lot of crime and murder rates. But uh, if you ask people who are viewers of Fox, for example, or who come from, they'll say crime is going off the charts. Yeah. People, the, you can't look at it, and then they would selectively show footage of things you have to worry about. To me, that's that's one thing is that if if the conditions don't produce um, are conducive to authoritarians, that sometimes people want to give the impression that they are, and then people are like, yeah, yeah, it's a dangerous place. The liberals can't protect you, but we can. That's the thing that, that gets to me the most. So it works in their interest that there's a big looming danger. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's yeah. like it's like the doomsday preppers. I don't care if somebody wants to prep for doomsday, but if they if they almost some people want to want it. To burn it all down, they just want to see things burned yeah. down so that they can then, you know. Again, the destructive yeah. tendency of the outgroup. That's yeah. So that bothers me more than people than natural differences in people. So. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the structures of religion have made their way into the political landscape? It's almost indistinguishable. What's the chicken and the egg in that case? Uh, because the the does the religion come from? Um, like you were saying, that, that people, liberals and conservatives, have different forms of religiosity, so where did that come from? Yeah, I would say, I'd put it like this. Um, I was reading an essay recently, do you know Paul Graham? Mm, I don't know. Okay, he's, he's a programmer. He writes these pretty good essays. But he was saying that we're, in, in our culture in this day and age, we're reintroducing the concept of heresy which is something, it's not a word you hear a lot. Heresy is all but dead. You know, you'd be hanged in the Middle Ages in the 1700s maybe if you questioned the divinity of Christ. That was heresy. Um, and we're seeing a resurgence in that concept in that there are ideas on both sides where if you talk about them or you try to reason with them or you try to make a logical argument for them, you're axed no matter how, no matter if the idea is true or false. It's just there's things that can't be questioned. And it made me think about post-enlightenment, post-like Nietzschean, God is dead sort of thing, are people clinging to political ideology in place of religion because it's sort of a, it's a comfortable, it's a comfortable structure that stood the test of time. Yeah. But people, there's this, there's stigma to religion now. So rather than adhere to a religious philosophy, yeah. people adhere to political ones in the same way they would to Islam or Christianity or Buddhism. 200 years before. Yeah, or conservatives would say that a lot of what they would call woke ideology has also taken the place of a religious doctrine where th some things are not questionable uh, to yeah. raise things like, you know, is it really true that uh, microaggressions you know, exist at all yeah. and then that person is kicked out or, or canceled? Uh, and, and then in the political realm, you know, let's say that you're a, a MAGA person, that they would kick you out of the Trump rally if you... If you have certain ideas like, you know, we need a free press and a democracy, you know, get yeah. out of the auditorium. Yeah, like the election was all right. No, get out. No, and so the, yeah, so a lot of people would say that, that the, um, that the politics can easily take on the trappings of religion if you consider religion like, you know, that some things are, are orthodox doctrine and to question that is 
heresy. Yeah. And so on the left and the right, often you see people ejected from, let's have a debate about that. Let's have a discourse uh, in the interest of like um, unitary thought. Yeah. Let's all be on the same page. And if you raise questions about it, you need to get out. Yeah. Do you think it's dangerous to have that structure without appealing to a higher power? To have, to have what structure? The structure of a religion where there's things like heresy, unquestionable doctrine, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't care what form it is. And that, in some ways, I would consider, my, you know, I used to consider myself um, liberal or progressive, but I can see that sometimes on the left that they have things that are similar to that, and I disagree with that as well. So I don't yeah. care what side you're on. Clearly, my, you know, when you're a professor, often uh, in, in my area, that um, my allegiance is to empirical evidence, disputation, yeah. challenging ideas, uh, what you would consider classical liberal uh, critical thinking things. Yeah. And, and it used to be the case when I started teaching that often the people that had problems with that were on the right, um, say yeah. a, a fundamentalist or a creationist. You know. But now once in a while I get that on the left now in my classes where, yeah. where they would say, you know, if I have, here's some data on, I don't know, um, trans people or whatever like that, if that doesn't accord with with uh, activism that often I get harsh remarks from students about, you know, that sort of thing. So I guess I would view myself now as being an advocate of like classical, liberal, critical thinking and yeah. such. So do you need a higher, so would you, do you need a higher power to enforce that? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. It's a big question. Um, I don't know if anybody would have an answer for it necessarily, but I do think we're going to see the answer in the next 30 or 40 years with the way things are going. I guess so. A psychology answer to that would be is that it's not a solution to refer up to a doctrine or a higher power, or because it's always cherry picked. I mean, even people that say I'm a literalist or I'm a constitutional textualist or I'm a you know biblical based guy, it's always cherry picking what you emphasize and what you don't emphasize. There's no way to psychologically not cherry pick. Uh, when you have a complex yeah. body of information that you selectively interpret things this way rather than that way, you can't get around. So like when I see a justice on the Supreme Court or a religious person or a atheist or whomever say things like, I just, I'm strictly neutral, I just call balls and strikes, that's impossible. For you got to acknowledge your own biases. Yeah. What do you think are some of the best safeguards against your own cognitive biases? Um, peer review. Review. Yeah, there's times that I've written something that I thought was brilliant, and then I send it off to journals, and then other people are like, you know, eh, <laughs> you know, you're wrong. And so, um, other people, other people criticizing it with an agreed upon framework of things like what's considered legit or not. Um, I think it's a, it's not perfect, but it's, you know, you could argue that a lot of the, uh, well, like you talked about what the Enlightenment, um, a lot of our progress that we've made since the Enlightenment is due to things like, you know. Publishing your work and then other people criticize it and then you do an experiment and then you come back So I'm way yeah. into like uh, experimental experimental empirical uh, Winnowing and we'll see who's right and maybe at yeah. some point I'll be overturned But whoever has the best data wins I guess would be my view Yeah in a data-driven Conclusion I think that's one I think that's the convicting cognitive bias of the 20th and 21st century is whoever has the best data wins and it's so, you can say that and people will go, yeah, of course, like that's common sense. Um, but I think that ignores the presupposition of science being the only means to achieving truth. 
I'm more extreme on that dimension than most people because of what I do research on. So, for example, many people would would agree, like you know, like uh, I was mentioning, my engineer friends in college, you know, they would be all about the data thing, but many of them were hyper religious because they yeah. viewed it as being separate magisteria. Uh, there are some things for science, uh, you know, when there are, and there are other things that are that science cannot address. My Venn diagram is as a psych of religion researcher is that there's very little that science can't address because it could address even the way that we interpret religion. See, we would disagree there. Yeah. Respectfully. I would say that, I mean, how long has the scientific method been around? Who's, was it Anaximander? If you consider, I, see, yeah, this is where philosophy I'm really bad at, but I think some people dated to Francis Bacon okay. uh, and his empirical, like, you know, at that time, it was empirical, like, let's test it out, Yeah. sort of attitude. But maybe this is a dumb question, but what means did he have that the scientific method itself is a good way of achieving External truth? validation. So you and I could say, you know, have data things, but then we would say there should be a, a test that we could have both agree on would be a resolution of that question, and we could then validate that or not. What's the best, uh, what is it, abductive reasoning, reasoning to the best explanation? Uh, who, you have your interpretation that could explain things and then I have mine and then once we do a test whoever has the one that accounts for the most closely to the phenomena wins yeah yeah it can get tricky because it's it's based on the assumption that all that we can perceive is all there is and yep. that's not entirely intuitive I mean if you want to go from an evolutionary standpoint our five senses were evolved such that we could respond to stimuli that pose an immediate threat to us. So we can see predators, hear predators, we can taste and smell food that it's not poisonous, we can feel and whatnot. And if there was another sense, if there was another danger rather that necessitated another sense, we would have evolved that. But as such, there isn't one. So the idea that, you know, the, the fraction of wavelengths that we can perceive and translate to a brain and senses is all there is to reality actually isn't entirely an intuitive notion. Yeah, so like take uh, what are those mantis shrimp that can see like in ultraviolet light and then, yeah. and, then, and what the world would, you, you could probably see this in there and you're like what the world would look like if you were a, that could perceive at those wavelengths and it would be like you know the flowers would look trippy and stuff like that because yeah. they're seeing all these wavelengths that we don't. I don't really necessarily see that as being. Uh, I'm not sure I understand why that would be a critique. So if the if the argument you're making is is that we're limited in our senses, there could be something more that we're not capable of perceiving, but that should still have some tangible effect on our, tangible effect on our world, and there's no reason to like, um, let's say a God who, back to the religion one, sure. um, if you are, you could say, maybe there's, our own limited human understanding can't really conceptualize God because he's so big, but almost, everybody would know God through some sort of tangible effect on, on yeah. you know, we should see it. In other words, a world without a God should look, should look somehow different from a world with a God. But if they look the same, or, uh, then you go with this most, the simplest explanation. Is that Occam's razor or the parsimony? You go with whatever explanation the is, Occam's razor. makes the fewest assumptions. Yeah. The problem is we're only given one sample, which is reality. Yeah, so I would say that, um, yeah, so I guess my presupposition would be if there's no reason to hypothesize, you have to have a good reason to hypothesize that something in, outside your, your um, so something exists outside that to, to um, you know, what, so like um, explain this, uh, you have to have s s 
something that you have to have some mechanism that would explain that outside your own reality. I'm not yeah. articulating that quite well enough. But Are you familiar with the Aquinian proofs? Some of them. Okay. From Thomas Aquinas, right? Yeah. yeah. They the, get more sophisticated. That's like up here and I'm down here cognitively. So. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can understand them. I'm not really an expert. But just the idea of the, the first cause, uh, the first cause, uh, sorry, I'm stumbling over this. I think it was like the first mover argument. Yeah. Uh, the, the idea that all things exist and all things are in motion uh, implies the existence of one thing that existed first and one thing that was the first mover. And since you can't go back in an infinite regress, there has to be a start. And since we know there was a start uh, with the, the Big Bang Theory, it's like, I, I mean, what caused that? I don't know. Um, so that would, isn't that standard rebuttal to that, that why can't you have an infinite regress? I believe so. I think there's one beyond that, but it just gets too philosophical. Yeah, the, the guys. For me to answer. I used to do this on the podcast, and I would handle the empirical science stuff, and then the other two dudes did the philosophy stuff. So they're much more familiar with the. Uh, you should have them on your show. They're, they're much more familiar with the, uh, the the usual rebuttals of the, the. Here's the argument, and they were sort of trained in all those things, like yeah. the first mover and like the anth what's it anthrop anthropic principle. Yeah. Uh, those sorts of things. So that's a little outside my wheelhouse, but. My understanding of that, just from my own limited perspective, is that um, if there is a, if everything has a cause, then even a, a god would have a cause as well. There's no reason to think that that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, I think the rebuttal of that, I don't want to turn back and forth, but uh, the rebuttal of that would be the attribute of the god that we recognize as the one who is uncausable. And then you get into very abstract notions of trying to describe who God is, and you have to define that by who God is not, and none of it is intuitive. And it, it gets very messy and very tricky. Um, I think that might be a conversation for another time. Yeah, usually I just deal with things that are like, you know, um, I'm, so when people ask about atheism, I would say that I'm atheistic about a, a theistic God, that is a God who hears prayers, answers questions, intervenes in the world. I'm more yeah. on mature footing about that. Is, could there potentially be a God who's a deist who kicked off the universe, but is an abstract principle, physics and all that stuff, like an Einsteinian God? Eh. Yeah. I, I'm agnostic about that because there's nothing, it doesn't make any tangible predictions. Yeah. Uh, they're just checked out, and then they might have, there might be a first mover, who knows. So, yeah, I can't disprove, you can't prove a negative, so I can't disprove that. But about the one that's like, there's a thing that intervenes in this and can only account for that, then I'm, then I, that dimension I'm more atheistic because then you have data that you can refer to. Uh, yeah, and I do like your research about some of the things which are perceived to be religious experience but actually turn to be explainable by natural phenomena because I think that's an important thing for people to recognize. Like a lot of the religious experience, um, some would call it smoke and mirrors. Like you go to a worship night, there's music, there's song, there's a rousing uh, sermon. Mm -hmm. and, and people will go, oh, okay, this feels good. This is religion. This, mm -hmm. is, this is what I want. And... That's good to a degree, but I think mistaking it for a religious experience is deadly. And I think your research tackles that head on, which I find very valuable. Yeah, there's a, so in my book that's coming out, there's a chapter on like religious experience about how the evidence that it's possible to misattribute your psychological experience to external, to that must be God, like you just said, uh, as opposed to other factors that could account for that psychologically. Yeah. I think you could, you could attribute it the same thing as like, we know love as an emotion, 
and a, a neuroscientist would look at love and go, okay, this is just serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine. You look at a, a beautiful woman, these chemicals excite in your mind, you want to procreate, yada, yada, yada. And I think anybody who's been in love will go, no, there is more than that. And I think the research of someone like you is good to separate someone who only feels that chemical love because there are tons of those. I'm on a college campus. There's tons of those relationships where it's purely <laughs> chemical. It's purely sexual excitement. Uh, and if you have someone who can step in and say, no, this is just chemicals from your brain, understanding that and seeking the deeper meaning of love in a relationship could be achieved if you recognize your own biases, your own inherent mistaking of what love is, if you reduce oh, uh, it. And so it doesn't take, I don't think it takes any way, anything away from somebody's uh, subjective experience. You still love that, you know, like for example, you know, I have cats that I have a nurturing thing with, and I yeah. can, but I can acknowledge that there's probably something in my genetic makeup that's like an attachment need to like nurture things. Yeah. That clearly they're pushing all those buttons with the little big eyes and the, you know, their little sure. cute faces. Yeah. And so when I do this stuff, like, ooh, look at you, you're so cute, <laughs> fussing over them, um, I can simultaneously think, oh, that's really legitimate, I love them. But on the other hand, you know, clearly they're pulling that out of me in regards to my nurturing instincts or whatever, some such biology thing. Um, yeah. the, the, I'm not as uh, up on, like, the various chemicals and the love response, but there's some interesting psychological stuff about misinterpreting your emotions on the basis of context. So, yeah. for example, there's kind of a, it's a gimmicky study, but they had a one where, um, it's called the Love on the Bridge study, where students were approached after just crossing like a rickety rope bridge, and an attractive female research assistant came up to the guys that crossed the bridge and like, would you like to fill out some forms? If you have any question about the study, here's my home number, call me tonight. Uh, and, then okay. they had, and then they had a control group who was sitting by a nice, not the rickety bridge, but a nice stable bench there, and she approached them. The guys who called her uh, up were much more likely to come from the scary bridge sample. Interesting, because they the, had the adrenaline the going. The adrenaline rush going, and they misattributed their, like, keyed up in this to her. I must be attracted to you because I'm, my heart's racing, my palms yeah. are sweaty, and here she is. She's kind of hot. So there's all kinds of studies like that where you can actually experimentally induce emotions in someone for one reason, but then they misattribute them to some other contextual factor. Yeah, so that's a perfect example of what I'm trying to talk about, is um, a lot of, yeah, if you, the rickety bridge, for example, could be like a sermon that just swept you off your feet and you go, this is it, like I'm giving my life to the Lord, this is everything I've ever wanted, and those are good, that is a good thing, the same way that if you had a relationship that didn't have the chemical response, there's very little probability of it moving forward. So there is a part of it that needs to be present in order to progress to the higher form of love or religion or whatever that may be. Well, you mentioned community a second ago. What's what's a better cute community bonding mechanism than multimedia, emotionally driven experiences that you and I could be up there speaking in tongues together or whatever, you know? So if, when people ask, like, is religion about community or... Religion is so successful because it's about that group thing we talked about before, enforced by the the belief system, emotional experiences, um, rules and regulations. So, what's a better group binding thing than for me to have this like profound uh, experience of like you know the Holy Spirit was in me and blah 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 with you, my brother, you know, and bonding us yeah. together. Uh, you could go probably all the way back to pe tribal people doing rituals together. You know, dropping acid and stuff like that, and having uh, yeah, hunting the experience. Yeah, psychedelic argument is very interesting. The, what, what's that uh, when they take in uh, the Amazon? Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, yeah. yeah. So, like, uh, some people actually, from the evolutionary perspective, research stuff like that and say that maybe those experience, the ex 
the ability to have a transcended experience is related to groupiness because it bonds people together. Yeah, I've looked at the psychedelic argument. I've actually seen um, the translation in the Bible. If you look at the original Hebrew or Greek, the word for sorcery is pharmaceutica. <laughs> so they forbid the pharmaceutical, the, the things like ayahuasca, the things like magic mushrooms, and any sort of psychedelic experience exactly because it replicated the religious experience so exactly. And I think uh, we're seeing a resurgence of that. There's a lot of podcasters and whatnot. Because that would make it, it's threatening to a church to have somebody have that individual experience because then they don't need the church. The church do that. They can go directly to God. Yeah. Or I would say they have the chemical experience and they mistake it for the divine. So the other area outside of psychedelics, there's some people that I know that do research on um, on ritual, painful rituals. Okay. So coal walking, body piercing. Yeah. Um, you know, cold water exposure, flagellation, uh, yeah, jumping in the cold water, and so those are often used to reinforce group boundaries and religion too. Mm. So from their, from his perspective, it would be things like a groupiness, like uh, let's say a loyalty, like you know, again, tribes that do these like painful initiation ceremonies. I'm going to go and have my like you know foreskin cut off or something like that, or like <laughs> body scarification. Why would you evolutionary wise? What sense would it make to do that? From the group binding perspective, I want to know if you're going to be a man man up with me and go on hunting trips and fight. Yeah. So that's an enforcement of that. From the psychological perspective, there's also cognitive dissonance reduction. If I invest time and energy and my own scar tissue in a in a practice, it must really be worth it. Because yeah. what kind of chump would I be if it wasn't worth it? Why do fraternities haze people? Yeah. Why does the military beat the crap out of recruits when it's not necessary for a military skill? Because it makes them loyal. Yeah. And they think, this must be the best thing ever, because I just did that. Yeah, it's strange how communities behave, where there are things that can harm the individual on the individual level, but are really good for the community. Yep. And alcohol comes to mind for that. I was listening <laughs> to a podcast about the effects of alcohol, and if you were just looking at a single person who consumes alcohol, you'd go, there are way more negatives than positives of this. There's no reason anybody should consume alcohol, ever. But if you look at what it does for the community, it's great. It makes people friendly, it makes people fun, you get these loving feelings, you have all these experiences. The community grows closer together through alcohol, which is what I think is the difference between alcohol and other drugs, as far as I can see. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, uh, the, um, the differences between that, but yeah. So like there are all kinds of things that are, um, yeah, like you said, from a the biology people would be better, but could be individually risky or liability that on a group level would be, um, would would promote groupiness yeah. and survival. Yeah. Do you think there's there's some trains of thought where they treat community almost as this super organism, and each of the human brains behaves like a neuron in that super organism? Yeah. So the um, there's a, one of the psychologists who has a, he's a lot on the on the internet. Jonathan Haidt. He has this yeah. um, a lot of videos on on morality and religion. And even though he personally I don't think is is religious, he talks about um, the pro social benefits of religion as promoting a, almost like a super organism. Yeah. Um, and that it creates what we were talking about a second ago with the in groupiness and uh, yeah. uh, binding people together on the transcendent level. God wants us to be a, a sacred community, not just you know friends. But my my take on that is that that's that's certainly true. Although it's always against what it's always against an out group, and that's yeah. where you get the dangerous part. And that is, it's it's almost impossible to have an in group without having. Then you're not in the in group. You're an out group. Yeah. Do you think it's especially with the internet and all these internet communities? You have these Reddit groups or Facebook groups or whatever, where basically you can fractalize human behavior into any number of in groups. And do you think that's maybe part of the reason we're seeing so much division? Yeah. I mean. 
it's a pro anacon. Uh, I don't know if there's uh, any solution to that, but like it feels so good yeah. to, to find your in-group niche on the internet. Like, even if it's you know, the dumbest thing Even possible. if you're the most trivial thing or, or you know, let's say that, um, that you're a member of a, like I'm from a rural, small area, in a uh, rural area, and so there's probably people there that were, this is pre-internet days, that were, felt pretty lonely. Like there's nobody else like me here. I can't, and now that you can find that, however niche you are. But where it, where it becomes dangerous is that it becomes siloed, where you don't have any input from the outside of like you know, uh, cutting across. So in sociology, they talk about bonding versus or binding versus um, bridging to other okay. groups. So like a church, for example, a, a church group would be really good at, at binding or bo- uh, together people within that group, but uh, it it it's bad for bridging across to different types of people. Yeah. Yeah, and the tighter the bond, the more likely you would be to chastise the outgroup. Yeah, I think that especially relates to, I watched The Social Dilemma, and they're talking about how internet behavior with the algorithm designed to get you clicking as many things as possible, it's going to keep serving up things that you like, which is good for the individual, but horrible for the community. Yeah, aren't they deciding that in the Supreme Court right now about whether that's a, whether the tech people need to be reined in? I think they just had a I've case last week where they, like the algorithm, the, the tech people would say, let's say you're YouTube, you're just saying, hey, I'm just offering content, you can choose whatever you want. If you end up on an extremist website, that's on you. Yeah. But then they said, but no, their algorithm funnels you into that, like each one you click on gets more and more, they get more and more data on, on, on saying, hey, you might want to watch this. And that's not just offering that on a platform. They're actually suggesting to you more and more specific things to watch. Yeah, it's really scary. Like uh, an algorithm is basically seeing all the, the scatter plot of your, uh, your mind, your interest, and it's trying to draw a line of best fit so it can know what's next. What, what would be your next interest in this day and age? But I think something that we didn't really count on was the fact that that line can actually draw the points closer to it so that it can make it easier to predict, so that it can do its job better. Yeah, so there would be a case where you could do AI, uh, uh, could have, even without anybody intending to, could have an adverse effect because it's siloing you into more and more detailed things. Sometimes I wonder, like, when they make suggestions to me, like, where did you get that from? What did I watch that made you think that I would like that? Yeah. <laughs> because I'm like, why, why would I want that? I mean, you're right, but why? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it knows something more about me than I know about myself, so. Yeah, that's the scary bit. Is what does it know that I don't? What's it picking up in the subconscious? Yeah. Do you want to wrap it up there? I don't know how much time you got. Did you have other, is that all the questions you had? I noticed you had things written down there. I don't oh, know. just notes, random. Actually, yeah, I think we, I think we hit all the main points without even meaning to. Well, okay. Is there anything you're researching right now that you want to share to the public? No, just with well, the book I was telling you about is just it's called a social cognition approach to religion. I think the subtitle is something catchy like when why God thinks like you. Okay. Um, so it adds the component to what we were talking about before of the, the the standard social psych thing about like you know attributions and biases, and that is the projective effect that people's tendency to not correctly perceive why they believe what they believe. So often people project as coming from out there, the things that are in here. Um, so okay. in other words, that they might mm. think God wants them to do things or God has certain expectations to do things. Now, obviously, some things about religion are written down from your doctrines and your texts. So, you know, it's not surprising that a, you know, a Catholic would say, I, you know, God wants me to have 
fish on Friday or whatever, you know, for yeah. give up from it. So that part's written down. But there are other things about, like we were mentioning with the cherry picking or like the, the subjective perceptions, like he's with me now or he wants me to marry this one or, you know, I, like that, that, that's, um, that you can show actually through psychological experiments that, that people have a tendency to project outward uh, things on the basis of, you know, personality traits, their own need states, deficit states. It's called spiritualization and uh, clinical psychology from a Catholic lens. It's pretty dangerous because it allows you to evade responsibility for your own decisions and put it on God. It's one thing I'm pretty outspoken against, and it's not talked about a lot. Oh, is there a term for that? I didn't know that was the Catholic term for that. Spiritualizing. God wants me to date this person. God wants (laughs) me to do this and that. Yeah, so some people take that to a a very micro degree, uh, even having uh, private conversations with God through the day with trivial matters like, does God want me to watch this movie or this movie? And encourages people to have conversations almost as if God was in a room with them. And so they encourage, like, some of this are people who are like um, charismatic, Pentecostal, tongue-speaking or possession-type people. And so they would view that as being a benign extension of, you know, cultivating a skill to talk to God as if he's in the room with you like a friend. So clearly from the perspective of projection, I would, you know, that, 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 that there's evidence that the people are, you know, uh, projecting their own need states onto God as like a surrogate friend to fill the... They could the, be. I think it's good if you're a religious person, you have that dependence of communication on God, but I think it gets dangerous when you use it as a scapegoat for responsibility. That's the only point where I'll push against it. Yeah, so there's some recent, actually there's some, I was looking at papers the other day where they, um, the belief that, even among believers there's variation on this, but the belief that that, um, God is active in the world, like actively intervening, not just in an abstract sense of starting the universe or things like that, but like, you know, stuff happens because God's pushing things around, that that can actually foster immorality because people presume that things happen in a way that's, and then here's their interpretation that benefits them. So, for example, there's some studies that, you know, uh, for passive immorality, like you find a wallet in the street, should you keep the money? That, that, um, that sometimes the, having a view of God as being allowing that to happen allows people to bend mm-hmm. it to where, oh, he meant for me to have it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Uh, or, you know, um, uh, he meant for me to get the promotion at work uh, over the other guy and things like that. So they often interpret events in their life as being the outcomes of God's intention which seems benign, like, oh, God wanted me to, you know, marry this or get that, but they can uh, can actually justify sometimes the benefiting from situations that, in an immoral sense, too, because they don't take action. They're, um, they're sort of um, stoic and passive when, uh, because they assume that God wanted it to happen. Yeah, while ignoring the dogmatic, dogmatic truths that supersede the, the present moment. Yeah, so I think there are some situations where it's not just simplistic, like, you know, religious good, bad, not whatever like that, but I think there are some forms of belief that could that leave an opening for you to project your own your own need states onto out there onto religious sources. Yeah. Yeah. That can be a, a dangerous thing when you mix cognitive bias with religious instinct. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to wrap it up we can wrap it up. Yeah, awesome. Doctor Galen, thank you so much for sitting down with me. This has been a great conversation. Super. Can you Edit me in a deceptive way then and make it seem as if I say really smart things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Edit out all the